Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a difficult moment for America. This is Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. In that moment, I think we all matured, maybe a little bit. You know, it helped me gain a new perspective of the world. Welcome to a special edition of the Michael Smirconish Program. A tribute to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. It helped me come to a realization that the world's not a perfect, harmonious place. I mean, obviously they've tightened up security in the last couple of years. And I was alive and I was here when it happened. Keep a dream alive of America, that how we, how we want to be and how we need to be. You know, we had to see something so tragic like that actually happen. I am a part of this. Now, here's Michael Smirconish. Welcome to Hour 2 of our 20th anniversary special concerning the events of September 11. And thanks so much for being here. In Hour 1, we focused on the preamble, the events that gave rise to the tragedy of September 11, in trying to put it in some sense of perspective. In this hour of the program, the focus will be what transpired that day. And then in the third hour of the program, as I said, we'll focus on the aftermath with specificity on the hunt for bin Laden. We all remember, those of us who were alive, we all remember where we were that day, right? In my case, I was at a stage of my career where I was a lawyer who happened to be a talk radio host. In the future would come the time when I would be a talk radio host who happened to be a lawyer. And I was actually on trial, meaning I was trying as a trial lawyer, I was trying a case in Philadelphia's City Hall. It was day two of trial. We all remember that 9-11 of 2001 was a Tuesday, a Tuesday with gorgeous skies in the northeastern part of the United States. So here I am, day two of trial. Trial gets underway that day without any idea as to what is transpiring in New York, in Shanksville, in Washington, D.C. And then a member of the TIF staff, TIP staff meaning the, the personnel in support of the judge, said, hey, a plane has struck the Twin Towers in New York City. And as a sign of my naivete, I I thought it was an air traffic control mistake. Well, by the end of the day, I'm no longer in City Hall. I'm back in a radio studio where, on an emergent basis, I am asked to discuss a subject that I knew next to nothing about, bin Laden and al-Qaeda. Here I am, 20 years ago, pulling that emergency duty. Good afternoon, everybody. I am Michael Smirconish. Have you noticed the date? The date is 9-1-1, and I guess that sort of sums it up. Uh, I'm on trial in uh, Philadelphia this week. The trial was interrupted at uh, 11.30 today when, when this uh, 
situation was explained to the participants in the trial. I'm here until 7 p.m. tonight. The phone lines are absolutely open right now. I know that it's difficult for some cell phone users to get through because I've had trouble all afternoon. And then at 7 p.m., the evil one will be here so that your reflections on what's taking place will have ample opportunity for discussion and discourse. We're commercial-free at this moment. The only time that our discussion is going to be interrupted will be at 20 minutes after the hour, and then at 40 minutes after the hour, and then at the top of the hour, so that we may briefly keep you updated from CBS News. So the phone lines are open. This is one of those days in our lives where we'll always remember where we were. I feel a bit foolish because this morning, uh, one of the court personnel told us at about 10 a.m., have you heard a building, a, a, uh, an airplane just hit the World Trade Tower? And my response was, boy, I guess an air traffic controller had the wrong coordinates. And then a half hour later, we were told there'd been another plane, and I thought, my gosh, they've really got everything crossing wires in Manhattan today. And, and even though the World Trade Center had been a victim of terrorism in the past. I, it just didn't occur to me. Absolutely did not occur to me. There's so many thoughts that I have, so many reflections. I want to, how could someone, some group of individuals, plan something of this magnitude and get away with it? And, and, and is there a single instance yet being reported in the news where somebody says that there was another airline and they stopped a guy at the gate? Or a gun were apre I have so many thoughts on this thing that uh, my cup runneth over, but I want your input. Yours truly on the radio air the afternoon of September 11th. The next morning, I went back to City Hall for the continuation of my trial. I didn't know what to expect. We had a jury of 12 and two alternates in the box. Would they show up? There was still an uncertainty as to what we were dealing with and whether more attacks would occur. And, of course, this was a government building. We were fearful that it would be targeted. Everybody showed up. Everybody, each one of those jurors was ready to go by 9 a.m. the following day. And I, I thought that was a terrific message in and of itself. For me, it began as just another day practicing law. For Ben Sliney... It was his first day on the job as the FAA National Operations Manager. Wait until you hear him explain what his first day on the job was like. We'll get to that next. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack. Now, back to a special tribute of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. You're listening to the Michael Smirconish Program on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for all of this uh, Twitter activity. I love seeing the way that so many of you are wearing your 9-11 Never Forget pins today. Uh, I mentioned just before the intermission that I was on trial on that day. We all know what we were doing that day. For Ben Sliney, it was his first day at his new assignment. He was the FAA's National Operations Manager. He was manning the helm of the FAA's Operations Center in Herndon, Virginia. The center is the National Air Traffic Control Center that monitors all nationwide air traffic, both within and coming from outside the United States. 
So on September 11, Mr. Sliney and his crew received rapid fire information as events occurring seem to be spinning out of control. If you've seen the movie United 93, he plays himself in it. And and you watch how it was the operation center so quickly overwhelmed with the size and the scope of the attacks and very quickly chaos seemed to be overtaking control. You also remember what a weather day it was in the Northeast. I mean, to this day, if I see a picture-perfect, crisp, fall, blue sky, I will say to myself, if not to whomever I'm with, it's a September 11 kind of a weather day. I told Ben Sliney he must have been pleased to have such a clear day for his first day on the job. Well, you're exactly right. I thought uh, to myself, uh, in, in looking at the uh, weather on the television that morning as I prepared to go to work, uh, that it was there was no there were no weather issues from Maine to Florida, and of course, uh, the East Coast awakes first, and uh, that's where the bulk of our traffic occurs on the day shift, and any congestion problems or weather problems will manifest themselves on the East Coast, and I precisely thought that this is going to be a very easy day for me and was turning out to be that way until uh, I got word of the uh, first potential hijacking. What time did you get to work that day? I arrived uh, around 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time. So word came at approximately 8.30, I guess, when you heard about American Flight 11. That was the first sign that all was not going to be well. Well, that's correct. I, at 8.30, uh, there's a scheduled meeting uh, that the uh, the National Operations Manager uh, attends to brief uh, upper management uh, in Washington via telephone in, in the facility on the events of the day before. And I spent an hour or so reviewing the records of the day before to uh, brief uh, those people on that. And as I was leaving to go to that meeting, I had appointed uh, one of the supervisors uh, that was with me that day to uh, stand in my place as I went to the, uh, during the period of time I would be at the meeting. And he uh, caught up with me as I was leaving the floor. It was a, it was a vast cavernous uh, type of facility and uh, indicates to me that uh, we had a potential hijacking out of Boston and American 11. And uh, I was a bit surprised. Uh, I hadn't, even though I had worked uh, uh, hijacks uh, in the 60s and 70s, I hadn't even heard of one for quite a bit of time. And I, I, I indicated to uh, keep me apprised. Our protocol on that day uh, for air traffic control is to generally cooperate with the hijackers, get every other aircraft out of the way of the hijacker, and let them uh, let the hijacker go where they want to go. Mr. Salini, I bet many of us have seen United 93, and I'll ask you about that in a moment or two because you, you played yourself in the movie. But did they get it right in terms of the way it looks inside Herndon? Take me in that FAA command center and tell me what you're looking at between 6.30 and 8.30 when you go to the meeting. Well, the, the room, as I indicated, is very large, uh, tw maybe 20-foot ceilings. It's probably uh, – it, actually, they've moved now, but at that time it was – maybe 100 feet uh, from end to end and uh, 50 feet deep. And it was tiered uh, at the back of the room higher, and there were three levels leading down to the front of the room. On each wall, uh, on, on, on two walls rather, there are uh, large screens that we can project any information that we want to on them. 
uh, weather, for example, will show on a screen. Traffic flows that are of concern will show on a screen. And those are about, uh, they're probably uh, maybe six by eight. They're large, uh, you know, the video screens. And I can, at a glance, see uh, pretty much the entire traffic picture of the nation uh, just by glancing at those screens. And the NOM, or the, the, the uh, term they use for the National Operations Manager, generally, uh, you know, is, is, is a position of oversight. I have, there are many, many uh, specialists and supervisors working uh, the actual issues that may arise during a day, and they keep me apprised of them uh, by coming over to the desk and uh, indicating it to me or, or calling me on the telephone they indicated to me. So I, I generally have an overview as, as the National Operations Manager of all the events that are occurring of any significance in the nation that day. And you can look at a map of the United States and literally see all, what is it, commercial or all aircraft of any kind that are in the sky at that time? Uh, all, all aircraft that have a, a transponder working, uh, which is a, a device that transmits from the aircraft that indicates uh, to the uh, air traffic controllers, uh, the speed, altitude, call sign, and uh, other attributes of the flight. Did you, and I, I don't mean to be disrespectful when I ask this, but did Ben Sliney remember what the hijack protocol was? It would seem to me that would be a thing from the past that might send you to some manuscript you'd have to refer to. Well, uh, as you might suspect, when I returned uh, to the FAA, I of course, reviewed our operations manual uh, manuals, and uh, the protocols had not changed uh, since the time I was uh, intensely active in air traffic control. History will forever record Ben Sliney as the man who gave the order to ground all aircraft. What caused you to make that call? It was a sequence of events, and uh, it was an attempt on uh, my part and the and the uh, and my colleagues' part to. Uh, get the situation under control when um, United, uh, uh, well, excuse me, when American 77 uh, struck the uh, Pentagon. Uh, at that time, I ordered a, a a complete ground stop of all aircraft in the nation, meaning that no aircraft could take off uh, from that point forward. And of course, I was contemplating. Uh, landing uh, everyone and considering, you know, how much chaos uh, I, I might create uh, in doing that. When uh, United struck the second tower, uh, at that point I had ordered uh, all air traffic controllers in the country to report to us about any aircraft that they deemed suspicious. And I defined uh, suspicious as any aircraft that, without authorization, changed its altitude, uh, changed its transponder code, shut off its transponder, uh, or deviated from its course. And within minutes, we had uh, maybe a dozen or more aircraft identified as, quote, suspicious. And also, I indicated that any air traffic controller, for, for any other reason, who thought that an aircraft might uh, be suspicious should indicate that aircraft also. Uh, the air traffic controllers are very uh, proprietary about the airspace that they're controlling, and they're very keen on... Uh, any anomalies that may occur in that airspace. So quickly, we had uh, over a dozen aircraft identified as potential, uh, potentially suspicious aircraft. How long did and, it? How, how uh, long? When, did, I'm sorry. At, I'm sorry. At the time that I had uh, ordered the ground stop, uh, I was contemplating uh, landing everyone, and again, uh, running through my mind the uh, implications of it. 
I didn't want to create uh, more chaos in the sky uh, than there was already, at least in my mind. But when uh, American 77 struck the Pentagon, I, I, I had enough at that point and said, uh, we've just got to separate all the so-called wheat from the chaff and get uh, every aircraft we can on the ground. How long did and that take to facilitate? I didn't hear that, sir. How long did that take to facilitate? It took uh, it took moments to issue the orders. It took uh, about two hours to land uh, about 5,300 aircraft. Contemporaneous with that, I also closed off uh, our borders. I, I wouldn't allow any other aircraft to enter our airspace. And thank God for, among others, uh, the Canadians who did a magnificent job of uh, landing and uh, all the aircraft that were destined for the U.S. during that period. I assume that it wasn't until the last of those 5,000 were down that Ben Sliney could breathe a sigh of relief in knowing that that threat had been averted, meaning you said at one point there were about a dozen airplanes that were uh, cause for concern. That, well, that is absolutely correct. Uh, I can see it clearly in my eye watching the large uh, one of the large screens that we had uh, put up to show every aircraft in the sky and there's a uh, a number counter in the lower left-hand corner of the screen that indicates the actual number of uh, aircraft that we're processing on the screen and as that continuously dropped uh, I watched it with a, a great deal of anxiety <clears throat> the first excuse me the first of uh, the crashes uh, all occurred uh, you know rather uh, quickly. The, I think the entire time frame is only about uh, 80 minutes or so from start to finish, but we, we did have in our minds and uh, in our throats the thought that uh, another one would occur and you're waiting for that next uh, foot to fall, so to speak. The aircraft that uh, we were watching, uh, United 93, of course, being the last to crash, uh, we were watching that on the screen as uh, he made his way uh, towards the Washington area. And, uh, of course, we got the reports of the uh, crash uh, in Pennsylvania. And we were, I, there is nothing more devastating uh, for uh, people in the aviation community, let alone anyone in the country, but particularly the aviation community, to lose an aircraft and all the people on board. It was a, it was a great anomaly in our, in, or paradox in my mind about how uh, – a hijacker could force a pilot to, uh, you know, to to hit the World Trade Center. I, and, of course, we did not know and did not have in our minds, none of us, uh, that the hijackers were actually piloting the aircraft. So we, we were quite concerned about how it was being done, and that effort to get it under control was a great relief when the last of those aircraft were down. Mr. Sliney, you played yourself in United 93. You mentioned that flight a moment ago. What was that like to actually assume that role for, for Hollywood purposes? Well, it was rather interesting, actually, uh, being a layperson in that field. Uh, certainly, uh, the process is very complex, but the reason I was on the set uh, in the first place was because the, uh, the director and producers, uh, you know, Paul Greengrass and Lloyd Levin, among others, uh, they wanted to uh, ensure accuracy uh, in the film. And towards that end, they had uh, a per people such as myself. They had uh, 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 Mr. Farmer, who was on a 9-11 uh, commission investigator, and I think he's now the dean at uh, a law school in New Jersey. Uh, they w we were on the set uh, with the 9-11 commission report uh, and, of course, my own experiences to ensure that 
what was depicted was entirely accurate. You asked that question or alluded to it a bit earlier, and I, I would say, uh, to my to my point of view, the the film was extremely accurate and is the time capsule of the events of that day. A final question for Ben Sliney, who on September 11 was the FAA National Operations Manager, and thank you for being so gracious with your time. Are there any particular subjects or areas where you think the public has a misunderstanding of what transpired that morning? I think the events have been uh, pretty much well documented. Uh, there, of course, are those uh, people who uh, have these alternate theories about the government involvement in it, but uh, I dismiss those as, as just insane. But uh, I, I think today, more than any, uh, than any time, uh, in, let me back up, in the, in the months and weeks and years following 9-11, I think uh, the events of that day were in everybody's mind. I think uh, the people now, uh, you know, have become inured, I guess, to the notion that uh, this can happen again uh, and dismiss it as uh, improbable. But I, I think, uh, for our purposes and uh, and memorials of the nature, uh, uh, the Garden of Remembrance, are a great aid towards uh, keeping this foremost in people's mind. I know I can never look at the skies again uh, or see an aircraft in flight again without uh, some, without a feeling of, uh, is everything going to be all right? And that's persisted in my mind since 9-11. We're back in real time. His first day on the job. Can you imagine? Ben Sliney has just taken over as the FAA's national operations manager. You know who else began employment that day? Aaron Brown who had just come aboard at CNN. We'll hear from him when we return to this anniversary remembrance after this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. This is a special edition of the Michael Smirconish program. This is a day when all Americans from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace. A tribute to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Thanks so much for all of the Twitter activity. I am loving seeing so many of you wearing your Steven Singer 9-11 Never Forget pins today. Keep them coming. So you heard from Ben Sliney, FAA operations head his first day on the job, and this is what he's dealing with on September 11. It was also a first day on the job for Aaron Brown. I have to say that if you speak to individuals who were alive during the Kennedy assassination, chances are they'll tell you that Walter Cronkite was the individual on whom they relied for their news and information. For me, on television at least, it was Aaron Brown. And Aaron Brown had just begun his new role at CNN in the snippet you're about to hear, it was only the second time that he had heard. He gets rather emotional. It was only the second time that he had paused and listened and reflected on his own work on that day. This is Aaron Brown. How did your day begin? You know, how did you become the guy who was on television at the time? Hmm. Well, um, my day began, as a cliche goes, like every other day. Um, in, all of our days began that day. Um, with no possible sense of what was about to unfold in our national lives. Um, and mine was no different. I was driving into town to, um, I'd been hired by CNN to put together a primetime newscast 
my job was to anchor that newscast, to be the managing editor of that newscast, and to handle breaking news for CNN. Um, I I heard on the radio that a plane had hit the Trade Center. So I was on the West Side Highway in New York. And um, I had assumed, like I expect many people had assumed, that there had been some terrible accident. And, but I also thought, this is news, and I'm probably going to have to deal with it. Uh, and then um, my producer called and said it was a big plane. I mean, shorthanding all of this. And then the second tower was hit, and I knew the country was under attack. And um, a lot of everything else that unfolded was both perfectly choreographed in a weird television news way. I had seen it a hundred times before. And totally different than anything I'd ever experienced, both um, in the smallest of ways. I barely knew my new colleagues. Many of them, I, uh, uh, many of my colleagues' names, I did not know. Let alone the quality of their work, which turned out to be exceptional. Um, and in other ways, it was incredibly. Uh, this will sound. This sounds terrible. I don't mean it in any sense dismissively. It was very routine. We all understood as professional broadcasters and journalists, what the work was that we had to do. And I'm not sure that I thought much about the magnitude of it, except in little sporadic moments, uh, until the day ended for me at about 1 in the morning. Were you scheduled to be on camera during the day hours? No, I was scheduled to... I remember I was going to interview... We were interviewing people who we thought might be interesting characters uh, for the program, when the program launched in October. And we were looking for a kind of ensemble feel, and I was going to talk to a woman named Alexander, Alexandra Wentworth, uh, who uh, was Mrs. George Stephanopoulos now, and maybe was then, I don't remember. Um, and she was very smart and very funny and thought she'd be an interesting person to have uh, on the program from time to time. Um, in truth, your name was thrown around as someone, you know, maybe we want to bring this voice in. And we were just interviewing people, my producer and I, uh, who we thought would someday make an interesting program without, obviously, and then the program itself was redefined that day also. Did so, so someone says, Aaron, we need you. You're the guy. You're going on. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I knew I was the guy, and I knew if something happened, I was going on. So in that sense, no one needed to say that exactly. I was I, dro- I was driving in. I dropped the car at 8th and 34th Street and was racing across 8th Avenue in New York to where the CNN building was and just thought, calm down. Um, whatever is about to unfold here. Uh, you need to be calm. Where physically were you in that? I have this mental image, yeah. and I'm sure that my listeners have a mental image of, of Aaron Brown with as a backdrop and perhaps a mile or two away, the Twin Towers. Where, where exactly? Well, I was at, the building was at 34th and 8th, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, and that's 34 blocks plus all the named blocks in New York um, from the Trade Center. It was probably a mile-ish or two. I don't, you know, I never, it was really close. In my mind, um, when you think a mile or two, it doesn't seem quite that close. But in my mind, um, I, I remember um, this is 
this is crazy to even tell this story. I was having a conversation with Peter Jennings, who is an important person in my professional life. I spent 10 years working for Peter at ABC. We were, we were talking about our experiences that day. And I said, the thing that, all, that stays with me, this conversation took place a year later, is how I could smell it. Wow. Um, and how I, I, I always thought it was harder for me to do the work that day uh, than the other three guys who were in controlled studios with functioning monitors and IFBs that they, they could hear. And um, we, we, were, we were outside, could rarely see the monitor because of the sunlight. We could smell the tragedy. Um, I can still smell it in many ways. I mean, it, it was a, a unique smell. And um, I, 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 to some degree, I've always thought people's reaction to my work that day was is way overdone. Um, I just did my job. So did Peter. So did Dan. So did Tom. Um, but I think the fact that I was out in it is what distinguished you. Changed the way people saw it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're privileged to have Aaron Brown with us. And I, I want to just remind mm-hmm. him and everyone of the chronology that morning. It's 8.45 a.m. that Flight 11, American Airlines Flight 11, crashes into the North Tower. It's 9.03 that Flight 175 from Boston crashes into the South Tower, a United Airlines flight. 9.43, the uh, crash at the Pentagon. At 10.05, the South Tower comes down. And that's where we pick up Aaron Brown anchoring for CNN. Aaron, if you'll permit me, this is just a 60-second clip. I'd love you to relive it with us. Here's the tape. There has just been a huge explosion. We can see uh, a billowing smoke rising. And I can't, I'll, I'll tell you that I can't see that second tower. But there was a cascade of sparks and fire. And now this it looks almost like a mushroom cloud explosion, this huge billowing smoke in the second tower this was the second of the two towers hit and i you know i cannot see behind that smoke obviously as you can either the first tower in front has not changed and we see this extraordinarily and frightening scene behind us of this second tower now just encased in smoke what is behind it which i i cannot tell you but just look at that that is about as frightening a scene as you will ever see. What runs through your mind as you listen to your voice? <clears throat> um, huh. I, um, you have no way of knowing this, but um, um, that's only the second time that I've heard anything, <clears throat> excuse me, of my work that day. Um, I've tried very hard uh, to avoid it. Um, <clears throat> May I ask I, when was the first? Um, yeah, I agreed. I taught a, uh, a class last winter, and my students at ASU, uh, it was a class in tele- I'm sorry, I'm just trying to... No, t- take a moment, by all means. <clears throat> um, my students at ASU had said this, it was a class in history for television, oddly much of which I'd lived and they said you can how can you do 9-11 and not talk about what you did and show us what you did and uh, they were right <clears throat> excuse me um 
I couldn't. So I took an hour of tape that day, and it actually took us um, three class sessions, which would have been four and a half hours, to get through that hour. Uh, and I thought I was over the emotional uh, power of it, uh, but I'm clearly not. Um, so I apologize for being a little stammery here. None necessary. It's just, you know, people, um, I never thought my experience that day oddly was, I mean, I know it's different. You know, I get it. You know, I had a diff- day different from the day you had or the day my wife and daughter had. But at some level, it wasn't different. It was the same as everyone's, maybe a little magnified because um, it went on so long and I was... Um, I suppose I was under a fair amount of pressure, but mostly we both, we all collectively watched our country, uh, a country that we love, a country we believe in, um, watched it attacked, watched fellow citizens die, watched extraordinary heroics from fellow citizens. And I suspect that 20 years from now, if, if God is kind enough to, to keep me alive that long, I'd hear that tape and still have trouble putting together a complete sentence, which I seem to be having now. <laughs> um, I May I offer you one observation? Sure. Because I've, I've gone back and I've, I've listened Anything. to... Anything. I've, <laughs> I've listened to all your work that day, and it's, yeah. it's, it's remarkable. And I, that's, that's the reason why well, we, uh, we really were anxious to welcome Aaron Brown today. Uh, the Barbara Olson story... Mm-hmm. Gave you a lot of material. You know, there were there was there was so little that people knew what well, what went yeah. on, and because of that set of circumstances, you you actually had a lot to work with based on that phone call and uh, I guess what was provided from Ted Olson. You know, it's it's interesting to me in sort of I haven't I don't talk about nine eleven very much, although I get asked to a fair amount. Um, how the day is broken into um, very discrete parts. There's the first part of the day, the all-hell-is-breaking-loose part of the day, when the 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 planes have uh, all hit uh, whatever it was they were going to hit, the Pentagon, the ground in Pennsylvania, uh, the Twin Towers, and the chaos of that, and the sheer uh, terror of that. And then there's this long middle part of the day, uh, Michael, honestly, where um, we're trying to figure out, all of us, uh, reporters and citizens, what the hell is happening and what else is going to happen. And um, that part of the day was weird to me in that I knew and viewers knew and everybody knew. We didn't know anything. That was Aaron Brown. We're back in real time. What a pro. That's Aaron Brown. Boy, do I miss him on television. Boy, do I miss his steady, capable hand. And maybe maybe a subject for a different day is, is to talk about how uh, Aaron's delivery, as competent as it was, is probably ill-suited for the uh, the polarized climate in which we find ourselves. Amazing to think as well, that it was Aaron Brown's first day at work at CNN. I mean, for Walter Cronkite handling the Kennedy assassination and doing a phenomenal job, he'd been at it a long time. 
This was Aaron's first day on the job. And in similar respect, Ben Sliney over at the FAA having his first day at work. I mentioned what I was doing. I know you remember what you were doing. It was not my first day trying a case, but that's where I was. Also, what I'm about to tell you pales in comparison to what Aaron Brown had to handle. In fact, I didn't even handle it. But it's just an odd coincidence. On my first day hosting a Saturday morning program on CNN, it was the day that MH370 went missing. And I remember well that I I got up that day in my New York City hotel room and very early turned on, probably would have been in the 4 a.m. hour, turned on the CNN International News, wanted to see had anything developed in the overnight because we'd already put our show to, to bed, meaning we knew what we were about to do. And there was a brief mention of a flight that was unaccounted for. And when I got to the CNN building that day, I asked my producer, uh, what about this flight? Well, we don't know much about it. Let's just stick to our plan and, and do the show that we've already prepared. And lo and behold, for the next six months after that show, the show in which I didn't even discuss MH370, for the next six months, the only thing that I discussed was the missing plane. My first day at, uh, at CNN. As I say, pales in comparison to, to Aaron Brown. Lots more to come. There have been a lot of rumors about the events of September 11. Who was involved? How was it carried out? Do we know the full story? We'll get into that with an expert from Popular Mechanics. And we'll also shift our attention then and talk about the hunt for bin Laden. Who had the first boots on the ground? And what exactly did our effort look like? And, candidly, what mistakes were made? Could we have gotten him sooner had there been some decisions made a little differently. And then Hour 3 lies ahead, and in Hour 3 of the program, we'll talk all about the events that led up to the takedown of bin Laden at Abbottabad. And my conversations will include, and you'll hear them, portions of my extended talks with Matt Bissonette, Mark Owen, his his name as an author, and Rob O'Neill, two members of SEAL Team 6. They differ slightly in terms of their accounts of what transpired, but here's something no one disputes. Both of them were there. Both of them went up that staircase. Both of them fired shots into Osama bin Laden. Peter Bergen, who is the only Western journalist to have toured the Abbottabad compound before the Pakistanis tore it down, will also describe what his tour was like of that facility, of that compound, within just days of SEAL Team 6 taking care of business. I'm Michael Smirkanish. This is my annual tribute to those that we lost on September 11, 2001. Much more good stuff lies ahead. I'm so glad that you're tuned in. None of us will ever forget this day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. This is the Michael Smirkanish Program. Marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11, here's Michael Smirkanish. So that I don't forget, I want to say to Dan and to TC, thank you so, so much. So much labor goes into our ability to present this year after year. So I really appreciate you both. I remember a day when one of our kids came home from school in the aftermath of September 11. 
and raised with me some fantastical conspiracy theory and then made reference to a, a video, an online video that was getting a lot of views at the time. I'm not even going to give it publicity. But it brings to my mind the great work that was done by Popular Mechanics. The editor-in-chief, James Meigs, debunked in a magazine and then eventually in a whole book any number of 9-11 conspiracies. I once asked James Meigs what they'd done to examine the theories, and here's what he had to say. Well, we've really been looking into these theories for about a year and a half, and we looked at the 20 most common uh, factual claims that the conspiracy theorists make. We're not getting into politics. Uh, we're not taking sides in debates. We're just looking at the facts, like when conspiracy theorists claim, say, that jet fuel doesn't burn hot enough to melt steel, therefore can't explain why the, why the towers fell down, or the hole in the Pentagon isn't big enough uh, to have been made by a commercial aircraft. It must have been a missile or a, some kind of uh, other device. Well, those are technical questions that we're in a pretty good position to answer. And, what, uh, what kind of a team did you put together at Popular Mechanics to, uh, you know, to bird dog them? Well, we've had about, uh, over the course of this project, we've had about uh, 10 researchers working on this, along with um, uh, various members of the popular mechanics staff who have expertise in different areas. In a lot of cases, it's just old-fashioned reporting. You know, if somebody um, like Kevin Barrett, the professor at uh, University of Wisconsin, says cell phones don't work in airplanes, therefore all those calls from Flight 93 uh, must have been faked somehow. What's well, the answer we on that? Well, we called up the engineers who work for all the cell phone companies. They said, no, cell phones work fine in airplanes. I mean, now, you know, that one occurred to me because I said, well, they've got all the cell, they've got the telephones in the back of the seats. I'm supposed to use that. And I've turned off my phone. Then again, I don't know what happens if I turn on my phone. Well, in fact, most of the calls made on 9-11 were made from those air phones in the back of the seats. But in some cases, people did use their mobile phones. They don't work great because the planes are moving in and out of different um, cell zones pretty quickly, but they do work, especially in rural areas like over Pennsylvania. Mr. Miggs, which of these uh, uh, conspiracy theories would you say you've heard the most number of times? Probably stuff about the World Trade Center being professionally demolished. That one comes up again and again. And, um, you know, if you go online, there's all sorts of people uh, analyzing the pictures and saying, look, this puff of dust, it can only have come from a professional demolition explosive. So we went and talked to the heads of the uh, major demolition companies, and, uh, and we talked to engineers. We talked to um, everyone involved in the various studies of how those buildings did fall down. And universally, they, they, uh, the demolition people just think it's ridiculous because uh, a real demolition doesn't work anything like that. But the, uh, the engineers who worked on the studies of, the, uh, of how the buildings fell down are, have poured a lot of time into this, and their account is really coherent. The conspiracy account is really based on kind of a cartoon idea of what we think a building must look like when it falls down. In fact, no one's ever seen a giant skyscraper fall down that wasn't professionally demolished. So the idea that it looks too professional is just based on a kind of a um, – uh, you know, a hunch somebody might have. It's not based on science. Well, here's another one that I, I often hear repeated, that the, that the the hole at the Pentagon doesn't correspond to the width of an aircraft. But it does, in fact, um, because the, the wings of an airplane aren't going to punch a cartoon-like outline of themselves in a reinforced concrete building. The... James Meigs from Popular Mechanics. Hour three of this program will be dedicated to the hunt for bin Laden. We start down that road right now with Gary Bernson, a 20-year veteran of the CIA's clandestine service who was awarded the Distinguished Medal 
and the intelligence star. He commanded a team of CIA and special forces during the war in Afghanistan. He wrote a book called Jawbreaker, and he tells us how close we came to getting him at Tora Bora. How many days after September 11 were your boots on the ground in Afghanistan? Um, I was probably I arrived first in in um, uh, Uzbekistan and then Tajikistan in late October and uh, assembled our teams and then by the, you know about the second of November I was on the ground and and you remained in charge of Jawbreaker the hunt for Bin Laden for how long? For that seven week period of time during the the, the combat phase. Leading up, leading up to and including, up, I left just, we 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 won the battles of Mazar Sharif, Talakan, which was my area, uh, the Shamali Plains, which was Kabul, the, the seasoning capital, Tora Bora, uh, and uh, once we concluded that, we raised the flag. And moments after the flag was raised at the U.S. Embassy, I was uh, a, another man came in who would assume control of all of CIA operations in the country, and then I exited the country. How close did you get? To capturing bin laden we came close not to capturing him but to killing him how close we and, and how do you where know he was on several occasions we threw a fifteen thousand pound blue 82 at his position we destroyed 75 percent of his force in the mountains you know in the in the fight in tora bora in, in about a 16-day battle we destroyed 75 percent of his force i was able to put four men up on a mountain overlooking bin laden and about a thousand men that he had fallen back with and they called in airstrikes for 56 hours on his force. This is four Americans with 10 Afghan guards up against a 1,000 of the enemy. And, and you're telling me that your four guys had him literally in their sights. His force down below, we, were, we had picked up a radio off of a dead al-Qaeda fighter, and we were listening to bin Laden apologize to his men, pray with them. We listened to them talk to one another about him, his location, if he was safe, if he was not. And then finally we heard him as he prayed with them before he fled the country. You know that bin Laden may make a, a hasty retreat to Pakistan. You want Army Rangers dropped in. It doesn't happen. Why not? I made the request that you cited the first two or three days of December, understanding that the Afghans we were working with down in Nangahar province were not of the Northern Alliance. They were of the Eastern Alliance. It was a group that we had assembled and paid there. And I recognized they weren't as loyal. I, I knew that we needed them. That, that, that only Americans could do that close in fighting and end this thing. You know, the, the, it was happening, the things were happening, the operation was happening rapidly. There was concern, I believe, that the, the military didn't want the risks that they could, you know, of, of, of casualties that they might face, and they decided to use air power to do this instead. They would give us Delta Force. Delta Force would come in force on day 11 of that battle and would assume control of the battlefield, uh, you know, 40 of them. But... You know, I had asked for 600, 600 to 800, and I thought with that we could end it. They just, you know, it, was, it happened too fast. It was too far. They were concerned about casualties. I believe they were concerned about casualties. I was not involved in those discussions at CENTCOM, but I made the request. CIA made the request of CENTCOM, and, and the military just wouldn't do it. In real time now, just last month, Peggy Noonan, writing in the Wall Street Journal, reflected on bin Laden being allowed to or able to escape at Tora Bora. She said this, what if we'd gotten Tora Bora right? Think of what might have followed. Bin Laden and his lieutenants captured or dead, an insult answered, maybe a few more months in Afghanistan for America while the bad guys were fully, truly broken. And then, time for some historical romance. A message is delivered by a U.S. general, the last general in Afghanistan, who puts the last boot on the last helicopter. 
quote, months ago, you wounded a great nation. Your government of mad imbeciles has been removed. Fortresses have been reduced to rubble. Your Taliban killed, Al-Qaeda expunged. Our mission complete. We will now leave. Let me give you some advice. Don't make us come back. It will be so much worse when we do. Human, ragged, and clear. What would have followed? Who knows? But it's hard to imagine it would have been worse than the 20-year muddle and the troops and treasure lost. So concludes our two of our 20-year anniversary special. I'm back to begin our three, looking at the post-events right after this. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.